So, one of the things that uh, you may or may not notice as you read the scriptures, uh, especially the Gospels, is that asking questions is a pretty common thing. Um, in fact, it's not just a common thing, it's actually an essential thing to our faith. The presumption of apprentices is not that we would merely sit and silently observe our master. There are certainly times for that, right? There are certainly moments for that. But that we would see through, what we see in the accounts of Jesus' life and his apprentices through discipleship is not just observational learning, but experiential learning. Prodding and probing the master for the how-tos, for the what's, and for the why's. In fact, until modern post-enlightenment education models became the norm, dialogical learning, education through questions and answers, coupled with observation, built, in, built on memorization, and um, interaction with historical thought, was actually the primary means of equipping the next generation to continue to both in tradition and in progression. In other words, it was the normal way of maturing mentally, vocationally, communally, and even in our faith. Dialogue and question. This was the way that we learned. Today, we'll continue in the tradition of asking questions, joining with Jesus' first disciples, asking, as they did in Matthew 13, why do you speak to them in parables? Again, for those new with us, every year we begin the year together in the parables of Jesus. We look at what Jesus says about life with God, us with him, us with him and others, how God works and moves, and the images God gives us is a great way to begin our year together, to set the tone for us as we look at the year ahead. And so, in just a moment, we're going to enter into a parable of Jesus in Matthew 13. So if you want, you can turn when your Bible is there. That's where we'll be. And we will listen to a couple things. We'll listen to Jesus' response to the disciples' question. And we'll be encouraged to do and do what they indeed did. We'll ask questions ourselves. Not just for Jesus' direct answer, but for the story in which he gives us. So again, you can turn with me in your Bible to Matthew 13. And then pray with me as Lily comes up to read for us our Jesus' reply to the disciples' question. Father, we thank you for this time again. Help us in these next few moments to let our minds and hearts be open to you. To all that you would say to us and show us. Father, Lord, where there is anything that we bring into this space that might keep us from hearing you, from seeing you. May those things be put down at your feet. And might your spirit be lifted up in us. All this we pray in your son's name. Amen. All these things Jesus said to the crowds in parables. Indeed, he said nothing to them without a parable. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. Then he left the crowds and went into the house. And his disciples came to him, and he said to them, Therefore every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house, who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. To be called a scribe, one trained for the kingdom of heaven, is no small thing especially for a group of primarily, basically educated persons, none of whose vocational training was in that admirable field. To be called a scribe by ones who aren't scribes, to be called one who could be a scribe by one whose education, whose history, 
um, whose tradition, whose limitations economically would not have allowed them to be such, is not a thing just to glance over and move past. Scribes in the Jewish tradition, whose name simply means writers, began mainly in the Old Testament as clerks to kings and governing officials, whose function was to copy royal and sacred manuscripts, to write down the things that were said that were important, needed to be remembered, not just for posterity's sake, but for the functionality of life. For life as it's meant to be under the rule of the king, under the rule of a godly king. Later, the title signified the official post of one learned in the law of Moses specifically. So no longer, when Israel no longer had kings, the role of the scribes moved from the working with the governing officials to now working with those who tried to establish and continue the, the way of God's people forward. How do they, we continue to be God's people in a time and place in which our rulers are not God's people, but, but we want to continue to be distinct, Right? So the scribes had a great place in that, an important place in that. According to one source, the people admired the scribes for their great knowledge and learning, their ability to interpret uh, and set all the precedents of tradition that went before them. Scribes were an admirable people. And we see throughout the gospel accounts, the scribes, along with the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the Sanhedrin, formed a type of aristocracy in first century Palestine. These weren't just simply another role. It was a role of some sort of leadership, of admirability. There was a longing to be ones who were like these people. And while in our Gospels they often find themselves in opposition to Jesus, there's still no doubt that the disciples listening to Jesus speak these words, who asked the first question, first question that we read, would no doubt have considered becoming a person referred to as a scribe to becoming somebody of great knowledge and wisdom of interpretation of life with God, the kingdom of God, would be a culmination, a terminus, a perfection or completion, a maturation of a holy and honorable aspiration. In a word, becoming a scribe would be the fulfillment in a way of their apprenticeship. I know we don't think about it that often, right? We think of discipleship with Jesus as once we get in and kind of just learn a few practices, a few habits, a few things, and that just kind of gets us through life. But Jesus is saying here to the disciples, the point of me telling these stories is so that you can actually be ones who have great knowledge and wisdom, become scribes trained in the kingdom of heaven. This is the reason I speak these things to you. Not just for your own information, but so that you can lead others into a way of life. Help the whole community follow me, follow life with God, walk in the ways that are true. The kingdom of God, life with him, life lived in his presence and towards his purpose, on the one hand, says priest and poet Malcolm Geith, is sheer grace, all achieved for us. And if we will let him, achieved in us by Christ. On the other hand, the kingdom of God, life with him, continues Geith, is to find it, to recognize it, to yearn for it, is to let go of everything else. On the one hand, it's sheer grace, completed for us, completed in us by Jesus. On the other hand, the thing that, that we long for within it, to go after it, to grab hold of it, costs us everything. So why does Jesus tell parables of such a reality? to train his disciples to become scribes, people of knowledge and wisdom, but not general knowledge and wisdom, but specific and shareable knowledge and wisdom of the kingdom of heaven, of this life of paradox, this life in which is sheer grace and at the same time costs us everything. 
The kingdom of God, life with him, a life lived in his presence and towards his purposes. Though experienced as a conversion, a turning to, is, as we learned last Sunday, actually a return home to our natural state, to how we were made to be and created to be, whom we are made to be and what we are made for. Plain and simple, real, full, and forever life is the experience of living with God and God living in us. Yet, Again, as another poet put it, while the kingdom of God may be the condition of complete simplicity, the very thing in which we are made to live, how we are made to live, it costs not less than everything. And there's this paradox, the seemingly contradictory reality of life with God, that a mission is free, and yet it frees us from all that we have. Life with God is where our true lives and purpose are found, and at the same time, it is the place we lose ourselves in our finding. Perhaps because such truth, while straightforward enough to express, and if you've been in the church for any length of time, you've probably heard it one way or another. The truth is, it's not always easy to live. And so Jesus offers us more than general information and generic how-tos, more than just gatherings and practices, more than just here's the the steps you need to take. He recognizes something about us. He recognizes our limited imagination, our inability to see through faith more than what is in front of us. So Jesus offers us stories, verbal images constituted of the very things in front of us, money, labor, leaven, land, etc. But contained in these spoken portraits, is the very means to the simplicity which our souls long, the very thing that we're after. Parables are not simply stories about something. They are a way to get to live in that something. Because parables don't define, they don't diagram, they don't synthesize, they describe. The word pictures force the synapses in our brains to create images of the description. Images that, if we're attentive to the descriptions, never look quite like they might if we were to only glance over them. The truth is, there always is something a bit off about Jesus' parabolic depictions, right? They're always just slightly different than our minds would expect them to be. Something is missing or out of place. And if we move too quickly through it, our minds, I, would habitually fill in or correct it. Like if we just glance through, if you just read through Matthew chapter 13 really quickly, and there's story after story after story after story, your mind will just begin to fill in all the blanks rather than let it kind of work through all the details and see the contradictions, see the little things that are off. That's why on occasions like today, we need to work our way into the story slowly, to use that divinely gifted faculty of imagination, to do the work of faith by listening to the voice of the Good Shepherd, who, as we saw last week, brings us home. And to see with the eyes of the helper, the helper, the spirit who convicts the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment, our own. Or in the words of Jesus in Matthew 13, we want to be ones who today are given to know the secrets, the mystery of the kingdom of heaven. Because we're apprentices of Jesus, just like his disciples. Like the ones who ask, why do you tell parables? Jesus said, it's for you to know these things. To the one who has, more will be given. And you'll have an abundance. That's what we're after, right? Not just a little bit, but all of it and all of it more and more. So blessed are your eyes for they see, for your ears for they hear. That's what we want today. 
to enter into the stories as ones who are apprenticed to Jesus, who have asked him the question, why do you tell parables? Who Jesus makes known for us the way into life full and forever in him. And so this morning, we're going to enter Jesus' brief parables with that mindset. And now, again, it's a story in Matthew 13 that is, that is found in a chapter full of stories. Full of stories that, um, that we learn are Jesus' consistent way of letting people in on his person and purpose in their own. That's what Lily read for us, right? That Jesus said these things in parables to them. And every time he said something to them, he said it in parables. Every time he did some sort of teaching with them, he did it in parables. In Matthew church 13, there are no less than seven parables. Two, Jesus explains the, the, the field and the weeds. But he does so because his disciples, like all apprentices, and if we're honest, like children, prefer the answer rather than the process. Right? I mean, if, if you're honest, if we're honest, right? When we think about life with God and getting in on life with God, on getting to, to be ones who not just have a piece of life with God, but have the abundance of life with God, right? Like the fullness of life that God's made for us, to be truly, wholly, completely who we are and who we're meant to be in this time and place. We want to kind of get not through, we want to get to not, we want to get to that point, not through the winding and weaving ways of actually maturing to that. We want to actually just arrive, right? We want the answers. Disciples who asked the question, Jesus, why do you tell us parables? Had the same, had the same desires as us, right? They long for the same thing. And so Jesus, in his kindness and patience, he explains to them a couple of the parables, two of them. But the other five, Jesus spoke with the expectation that those open to life with God could actually get in on the depth within these stories. Not just once, but over and over and over again in ways new and old. That in some ways, in Jesus giving them the answer to the other two parables, he kind of cut off the depth of the treasure. Right? They got the answer. Now they can just go on and don't have to think about it anymore. They can just reference this back as some sort of information that is there to grab when they need it and when they don't. Right? They don't get to, to, to delve into it and pull it out old and new. It's just old. It's just there. It's just what Jesus said. There's nothing new to be discovered because it's all been explained. And so Jesus in his graciousness doesn't explain all the parables, just enough to give the disciples like, hey, listen, I I want you to get there, but I care more about you getting there in the right way and maturing into that rather than just having the answers that you think you need. So knowing our tendency is to skip the process of maturing, learning and growing, experiencing, to skip over all that and just get to the center of the Tootsie Pop. Let's take a moment before we read the parable of what is probably a familiar story. Let's take just a moment and do what we did at the beginning. Just close your eyes or look down at the ground, whatever's most comfortable to you, and take a deep breath. With each deep breath, picture inhaling the Spirit of God with us. That's the way our scriptures describe it. Hold that breath in, the Spirit of God in you in for three seconds. And on the exhale, imagine... As your breath is going out, that you're expelling all of the distractions, the fears, anxiety, boredom, apathy, confusion, assumptions, pride. And let yourself, just let your body just rest in the presence of the master who's telling you stories to help you mature. So you do that with me. You close your eyes or look down at the ground, whatever's most comfortable to you. 
The whole idea is just to let you be in the space where God is with us. Jesus said, wherever two or three are gathered in my name, there I am also. I'm here right now with you. So breathe in his presence. Deep breath. Breathing in, Spirit of God. Hold it for a couple seconds. And then let your body release all the distractions. The assumptions that you have of life with him. The fears that would keep you from him. Anxieties that keep you from being attentive. Boredom that has your mind go all over the place. Do that a couple more times. Just in your own space. A deep breath in. A deep breath out. Now I'm going to ask the Spirit for ears to hear and eyes to see. As we imagine ourselves in the middle of the story, the Word of God, the spoken parable of Jesus. So will you pray with me? Holy Spirit, you're here with us. You're in us. You've shaped and formed us. You've drawn us to this place. We've set ourselves at the feet of Jesus, our Master. And we long to learn from him. Learn from life in him. So give us ears to hear and eyes to see what those who have come before us have longed to imagine and see and be a part of. Bring us into your presence, into your place. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now I'm going to read the story for us. It's a really, really long story, so just just buckle up. When you feel your mind leaving and wandering off, inevitably, right? At least it's not in the afternoons anymore, so maybe we're a little more awake and attentive. We've have, we all have coffee now, some caffeine, so we're good, right? When you feel your mind wandering off, just take a deep breath and try to come back to the story, right? That's going to be true for our entire time this morning, right? Like when we feel our minds kind of going into the to-dos later or the chilliness or the cowboys or whatever it might be. Like, just breathe in a deep breath and come back into the presence. So here's the story. This is what Jesus says. Jesus speaking. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys the field. End of story. Now, you've probably heard that story before, but even if you have not, your mind has already created an image of what is happening. Just in that brief sentence. Filling in everything from the details of the field. Perhaps the field's a meadow. Is that what you pictured? Or maybe uh, it's an empty lot. Or perhaps a tilled plot. What is, what, what's in your head? Like there's already in your mind, as soon as you said a field, a field popped into your mind, right? Some sort of field. But more than that, your mind has started to fill in all the details of the treasure. Was it... A chunk of gold? Was it jewels? Was it some sort of artifact? Was it a treasure that was a discovery hidden? Was it, was it buried? Or was it in a barn? Was it under a pile of trash or hidden in the woods somewhere? Just off to the edge of the field. And then the morality of rehiding the discovery has already begun to kind of formulate in your mind. Moving, are you taking the treasure and like sneakily moving it over to another spot? Are you digging a big hole and burying it back up? Is that shady or not shady? And then your mind, maybe just a little bit, usually not. This is the one we kind of tend to avoid. But maybe your mind has started to go towards all the efforts necessary to liquidate your possessions. To get rid of everything in order to be able to, with a straight face, and not giving away the secret that you've discovered to the owner, 
purchased the field and all its contents. Do you have that image in your head? You have some sort of picture of that happening, right? Okay, so here's what we're going to do. So for a few minutes, we're going to play with that picture. We're going to try to tease that picture out a little bit. This is the beauty of a parable. This is what a scribe gets to do. One trained in the kingdom of heaven gets to, gets to go into the house and draw out the treasure old and new, right? So this is what we're going to get to practice a little bit. So this time, I want you to kind of close your eyes a little bit. Just, just follow me with this. Close your eyes. I want to bring a little bit of clarity and focus to this, to this image that's already beginning to churn in your mind. So with your eyes closed, imagine yourself as a person of modest means. Maybe you don't have to do much imagination for that. <laughs> but specifically, I want, to, want you to think of yourself as a farmer. All right? And maybe you don't have any history with farming, and that's okay. But think of yourself as a farmer, somebody who works land, right? Who does something with land. So whether that is ranching on it, whether that is tilling the soil and planting things, you're a farmer. This is your job. And again, your modest means. You have the basics and perhaps a little more to call your own. You're not completely impoverished, but you're getting by. A few possessions and assets of value are yours outright. But like most in your community, you work on another's property. You give them a percentage of the yield. My father-in-law is a farmer. This is a common practice in, in how he's made a living for the last, for, well, generations in his part of the world. You don't just farm the land that you have. You may or may not have land, but you farm the land of those around you for percentage of what you produce on top of the land. The land is yours in sweat, but not on paper. Now, what does it feel like working for yourself in some way, but also always for someone else? Can you imagine that? What does it feel like? To work for yourself in some way, to be the one responsible for your labor, to be responsible to help create and foster yield, to be dependent upon your, your livelihood, dependent upon your work, but at the same time, it's always for someone else also. What's life like getting by on the basics? Having some, but always needing something more. Do you hope for more in life? Is it a wishful hope, one like where you're going to get the, the lucky numbers on Wheel of Fortune? Or is it a sure hope that you'll experience more than what you have? Because you're putting in the work, you're putting in the labor, you're doing what needs to be done in order to get ahead. Now imagine... As a farmer, most days you go to the field to do the daily and seasonal tasks. You till the field. You sow the seeds. You observe and care for the crop as best you can. You harvest when it is time, and you plow it over to start again, hoping and waiting between the times for the growth and the yield. Because you work the field and check the fences to keep the grazers out or in, you know the curvature of the land. You know how it rolls and where it lays flat, where the water pools after rain and how the sun hits it and the trees shade it. Again, it's your place of labor and profit, perhaps even of love or maybe loathing, depending on the season, though it is not wholly yours either way. In your mind, in your imagination, look around. What do you see? What's the shape and layout of the field? Are the woods, are there woods on any side of it? 
Is it completely open or is it surrounded? Where's the entrance? It's on the north side, west side. Is there anything growing in the field this time of year? What do you hear? Remember, you've gone out to, to work the field that day. Are there any animals out this morning? Maybe it's five degrees, maybe not. What about your neighbors? Are they already at work? Can you hear them on their fields? What do you smell? The freshness of morning dew on the grass? The recognizable stench of the neighbor's herd? Fertilizer? Natural or not? Is there anything unfamiliar in this daily place? This place of labor and of profit, of love and of loathing? Does anything stand out as unique? You've walked this field hundreds of times, worked it for years. You hardly expect to discover anything new beyond a fresh collection of animal tracks or a sagging fence line where the neighbor's bull keeps testing the boundaries. But today, something does catch your eye, a reflection of a shiny object. Maybe it's a piece of metal off the old tractor or some bailing wire that fell off. But the glimmer in such is much brighter than something so common than that. So you step off your usual route for a closer look and discover a chunk of gold bar protruding from the ground, washed clean by the prior evening's rain. Can you imagine it? Can you see it? Wherever it is in your field, what's your first thought at the discovery? Do you think it's real? A joke? How could something like this be in a place so familiar and you not know it? How could something like this be in a place so familiar and you have missed it all these years. You dig the gold bar out of the rain-softened ground. Now in your muddy hands, you realize it's bigger than you thought and heavier too. Maybe this is real gold, you finally allow yourself to believe. To your surprise, you notice that under the bar, muted by the dirt, is another bar. You hear the neighboring farmer crank up his tractor in the distance, reminding you of the work that brought you here this morning. But your heart is racing too fast to consider just going on with your day as usual. You grab the shovel you keep to dig yourself out of ruts and start digging out your now only half-buried treasure. Soon you discover that there are more bricks than you can count. What emotions are you feeling at that moment? Are you excited? Is there relief? What are you relieved from? What about nervousness? Is there any nervousness in discovering such a treasure? Relief or excitement? This discovery has already changed your life and has the potential to do so in ways you cannot even yet imagine. You know the field has changed hands dozens of times over the years by the various distant inheritors and absentee investors. The person you're releasing from now seems nice enough Though their distance and lack of labor suggests they were as unaware of the treasure as you were just an hour before. Whosever treasure this has been has been gone for a long time, and none of their heirs have returned to even look for it. So what will you do with the treasure? Neither it nor the field is yours. 
So you can't just haul it away in hopes no one will notice. You could take one brick out at a time, I suppose. But if you start taking gold bars to the bank, people will wonder where you got it. And then you'll have to turn over your entire find. You can't just have this treasure a little at a time any more than you could walk away with it at this moment. But an idea strikes you. What if I buy the field? If I did, the treasure would be mine outright, without dispute. If the owner is actually the one who owns the treasure, he won't sell me the field. But if he sells me the field, then he never knew the treasure existed. But how can you buy the field? Savings is hard. Saving is hard. What you put away is barely enough to cover more than a few months' expenses. You don't have enough credit for such a quick and significant purchase. But you do have an average home, a reason to be a reliable truck, and a collection of other goods under your roof. Maybe, just maybe, if you sell everything, all your keepsakes, your family heirlooms, all your everyday utensils, you can afford to buy the field. So you bury the bars in the farthest corner from the county road, packing down the dirt and covering it with some fallen brush to ensure it remains hidden. You decide the trade-off is worth it. Really, it's no decision at all, right? Even with all the good memories, emotions, and usefulness of your possessions, you joyfully, without hesitation, liquidate your life. Your friends and family are unsure what is going on. But you know that what looks like a crazy abandonment will change your life and theirs forever. But you keep working the field day after day. Day after day, doing what needs to be done to ensure, at least for your part, that the next harvest will be what it needs to be. In a month, everything is gone. Through a realtor friend, your house is sold to a flipper for cash. The truck was brought, bought by a neighbor who thought he could keep it running well enough for his soon-to-be 16-year-old to mud around in. A series of yard sales and Facebook posts ensured that the remainder of your belongings, even your most precious ones, have returned enough cash to purchase the field you once thought was only a place to make a basic life. On the day of closing on your purchase, which cost every penny you had, including your emergency rut shovel, you borrow a shovel from your dad and you start digging. What does it feel like to uncover what is now yours, a treasure that cannot be taken from you? What's different about this time digging it up? What will be different about your life, about you? Now that the field and all that's in it, the treasure is yours. And here's the question. What will you do with the field now that you've found more in it than you ever knew? The kingdom of God, life with him, a life lived in his presence and towards his purposes, a life in which we are home with him, in which our lives are his, the roads he travels, as the psalmist said and Allison declared for us, is truly good news. A reality, a way of life of the most incredible wealth, worth the joyful abandonment of everything we presume is necessary for life. Because in it is the very place where a life is made. So let me ask you this question. Have you discovered the treasure of life with God for yourself? Where was it hidden? For a few moments, quietly by ourselves, before we start and have a time to discuss some of these things. Just consider these questions. Have you discovered the treasure of life with God for yourself? 
Where did you find it? I'm going to be quiet just for a couple minutes. I'll let you think on it, and then I'll help us transition into discussion. Jesus tells us parables not just to give us the answer of what life in the kingdom of God looks like, but to give us a means of maturing into that life ourselves. And the way that they do that is by us trying to enter into them, not just to get them right, but to actually get in on the life in which they're describing, the life with God. And so to do that, what would have, what would have happened in this story, in this time and place, is Jesus would have had this discussion with his disciples, like, they would have talked about it. He would have explained a couple of the parables, told other parables, not explained them, kept going. And then they probably would have been around dinner later and continued to talk about these things, to flesh these things out. We know it because these parables 
were the ones that got retold to us. And as Matthew would say in another part, that Jesus told so many parables that we only have a very, very small amount of them. And so for some reason, these were, parable, these were parables that stuck, which meant they were parables that they either heard multiple times from Jesus and or most likely were the parables they actually talked about, <laughs> the ones that helped them mature into the life that Jesus desired for them, a life led by the Spirit, obedient to the Father, full of grace and truth, right? And so that's what we're going to do for a few moments this morning is have an opportunity to practice that normal thing of apprenticeship, of talking about the parables, getting into them a little bit. So what we're going to do is break up into groups of three to four and just talk about some of the things that kind of came up in your mind and heart as you were thinking on this parable. Whether you want to share the thing we just reflected on, your own testimony of where you discovered the kingdom and where, or you want to get into some of the things that kind of came up in the story. There's not a right or a wrong in this. There's just a point of processing it together with others who are after the same thing. A life full of Jesus, a life apprenticed to Jesus, a life after Jesus, okay? So break up into groups of three or four. Again, not, if you don't want to share, you don't have to share. You can just listen. But even listening is, a, is an important part, right? Like sometimes other people say things that help us get into to what God's already kind of showing us and hearing us. So, so just do so with an open heart. So break up into groups, and then I'll come back in a few, few moments, and we'll continue with communion and with song. Okay? Ready, break. All right, did I get it all figured out? So, general rule of thumb for parables. Your first reflection through a parable reveals more about you than probably it does about God. Right? So, like, what things you get hung up on, what things you don't get hung up on, probably speaks more of what you've either been taught, like it's kind of been, this is the thing that, that's always been told. Because, again, especially in church history, if you've been in church much in your life, you've probably heard parables preached and taught. And usually what preachers do, um, like myself, they try to get you to what Jesus did, and they try to break down the parable for you, right? Like he does with the, the sower and the, uh, or the weeds and the, um, um, the, um, the different soils, right? Um, but again, Jesus purposely doesn't do that for the majority of his parables. The disciples didn't give us Jesus' answer to these things. Even though, well, we know, like, they tried to get them out of him. Like, they, they would keep asking him for these things, right? So there's a piece of the reality of, like, meditating on, getting into parables that are meant to kind of continue to work on us, to get us into something, right? That's the whole idea of a scribe who, can, who becomes a master of a house, who's trained in the kingdom of heaven. So the, so. When we're talking about parables, the goal isn't simply, again, just to get an idea of the kingdom of God, but to help us mature into being ones who are trained and living in the kingdom of God so that we can keep going back and forth into these treasures, drawing out what's old and true and good, but also what's new in them, right? Because in truth, like we'll never be able to exhaust not just our knowledge of God and life with him, our knowledge of self because of God's knowledge of us, We'll never be able to exhaust the actual beyond our all we can ask or imagine life with God that he intends for us, right? And so my encouragement is this. If you haven't done so already, like, like to make some time in the week ahead to come back to the parables. 
right? So on, in the app, you've got a couple of things for you, for your assistance. One, you have, you know, what parables we're talking about next Sunday. So already Deidre was already there. She was already, she was already in. She, had, she jumped to the pearl, right? So, but in the app, you can find a practicing the parables guide. They'll just help you say, here's, what, here's our next parable. Here's, here's some questions to ask, some things to kind of get your imagination already started before you come into Sunday. But then also in that same place will be the notes from today with all the questions I asked you while we were reading. All the things that try to help your imagination kind of get going, right? Take some time to reflect on that, to continue to dialogue with the Lord and that and one another, right? Because there's, there are rich and incredible treasures of life with God in the parable, but even more so, you're doing the work of getting into the parable is the work of maturing into the kingdom of God, into life with him, right? Okay, All right, let me pray for us. And then um, after I pray for us, we're going to go to song, right? Sweet. I, I always get a little mixed up. Um, Father, we thank you for this time. A time to um, a time to get into a way of thinking on the word that Jesus means to help us not just be full but to be given something that continues to fill in abundance. And so I pray for my friends and faith family as we continue to reflect on the words of Jesus this week. The words that were read and talked about today, the ones that we'll talk about next Sunday, Father. That you would continue to give us eyes to see and ears to hear. That we become ones trained in the kingdom of heaven. Lord, as we listen to you, as we speak with one another about you, as we invite our friends and neighbors and coworkers into these strange stories, stories where even today, Father Lord, that uh, there's parts that seem a little different than what we would expect. Thank you, Father, that you love us enough not just to show us the way, but to give us a way to continue to grow, and to mature, to become more than we could even ask or imagine. Not just for our sake, but for those around us. We pray these things in your son's name. Amen. We stand with me.